Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Learner's Corner. This is the podcast for lifelong learners where we learn from anything and everything. My name is Caleb Mason. My name may or may not be Todd Hicksonball, a.k.a. the Todd Father. And we have a great episode for you today. Today we are talking with Melissa Schilling, who recently wrote a book that Todd, I think, very much identifies with you. It's called Quirky. Shut up. Actually, I'll take it, especially <laughs> as we get into it. Some of the people that, mm-hmm, I'll take that. Todd, tell us what this book is about. So Melissa wrote a book. She kind of did a deep dive on eight different innovators, um, people who were incredibly successful. And she talks about all eight of them in the book. It's, it's kind of and a, how she came to the process, right? Of it, which is pretty extensive. That's yeah. It was it was a lot of thought work. Um, so basically, the book is like eight mini biographies in which she examines quirks of each um, kind of of each of these people. And so uh, here's the cool thing about it. What she did was she looked at some people. I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, Elon Musk, Steve Jobs, Ben Franklin, Thomas Edison. People like this. People who didn't just create, um, you know, the, the latest sham wow. They've, like, created stuff over a consistent amount of time. By the way, shout out creator of sham wow. Um, but they, they've done stuff over an extended period of time. They've really changed the world with their innovations. And she wanted to study to see if these people had any quirks. That we could, by the way, I can't believe you just. Did I that. just, I just did it. I did. Um, if there's anything that, that that was consistent about them that that could be kind of bottled or at least studied to figure out how they work, and she found a lot of stuff. And so th- this, that's what that's what this conversation is all about. And she's a uh, she she um, she's a professor. She's a professor, and she her work primarily deals with like business strategy. And so that's what this is really, really interesting, especially if you're if you run an organization or you do that kind of stuff. Really, really cool conversation. Now, before we jump into our conversation with her, we have our Learner's Corner podcast recommended resource of the week. Let's do it. Todd, what's your resource? My resource is a podcast and it is called the Dead Men Podcast. And the it, what? It, it, the Dead Men Pod. Look it up. It's called the Dead Men Podcast. And this podcast is one that I have started re- recently listening to. Um, it, it's a newer podcast. Um, it, it's a newer podcast. But um, they, they're really interesting. So they talk about theology. They talk about church stuff. But they talk about life. And so um, you know, you, you could, a litany of different topics. Marriage could be a topic one week. One in particular, a friend of ours from the show, uh, Micah Hasty, he actually went on their podcast and actually did an episode with them, and uh, it was around uh, Christmas time this past year. And so, really interesting podcast. I've been learning some new stuff because these guys have some interesting takes on how they kind of come at this, um, and interesting story uh, as well behind the show. So check it out. It's called the Dead Men Podcast. Do it. And shout out to Micah. Shout out to Mi- shout out to Micah. Micah, I miss you. That's not awkward at all. So. As I said earlier, we're talking with Melissa Schilling, and we're really excited about this conversation with her. Oh, and one more caveat about this episode. So we're interviewing Melissa Schilling, but there's actually three people being interviewed in this episode. You will hear throughout this episode two guests that she has brought along with her. As a matter of fact, they they live in her house. They are her pets. Their names are Bongo and Simon. And they are parrots. Now, now we you, talked you, about editing now, them out. You may think 
Is Todd just making this stuff up? No, nope. We, we thought about editing this stuff out, but it was so entertaining that Caleb and I kept having to hit the, uh, the, the mute button while we were doing it because it was so funny we would start giggling. They are awesome, and uh, we're, you're going to hear them. They're there. So, with that, okay, this is so outside of Caleb's comfort zone. We're really excited about this conversation with Melissa. It's really insightful, and she's going to help you figure out how you can become more innovative as well and how you can take what Steve, you can become. Here's Todd's promise to you. You will become the next oh, Steve Hold on. How are, you, how are you saying this is my promise? That is not even worth Hey, you know what? Let's just go to the episode. Shout out to Bongo and Simon. Well, Melissa, we're so excited to have you join the Learner's Corner podcast today. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. You know, you recently wrote this book called Quirky, and it's all about these different innovators and people who have, you know, kind of, in a, in a sense or some degree, kind of changed um, things going forward. And so, you know, can you just tell us a little bit of an overview of the book? Yeah, so the book started out as a research project. It was eight multiple case studies that I wanted to use to compare different breakthrough innovators to each other to see if there was anything they had in common that made them different from the average population. And uh, so the book became, and it turns out there are a lot of things, and so it has lots of themes that come out that are commonalities among the innovators. And then I show how those themes lead to innovation. Uh, So particular traits, for instance, of innovators operate through some mechanism that enables them to become serial breakthrough innovators. But the book is organized almost like eight biographies. So you, you get to enter the lives of eight different people and each biography sort of illustrates one theme particularly, but then almost all of the innovators have almost all of the traits. So all the innovators come up in all of the chapters to some degree, but each chapter does focus on one innovator at a time. So it's kind of like reading a series of biographies with some analysis and explanation of what that means and what we can learn from it. And can you just give us, you know, an overview of who, who are the eight, interv- eight innovators that you chose and kind of why you ended up choosing them? Yeah. Okay. So I ended up, let me tell you how I chose them first, because I think that that's significant to understand. Uh, I'm an empirical researcher by, that was a bird. Okay. I am an empirical researcher by training. And one of the things that's extremely important in research is to make sure that the researcher isn't somehow introducing bias into the findings through how they select a sample. So it was really important to me to start off with a criteria set that would make it so that I wasn't picking out innovators. So I didn't just go out and pick out my favorite innovators to study because that would have introduced a lot of subconscious bias into the process. So what I did was I I came up with a set of criteria. Everybody had to be on multiple most famous inventor or most famous innovator lists. And that criteria was to ensure that anyone would perceive these people as highly important and their breakthroughs as having had a big effect on the world. They had to be serial breakthrough innovators, meaning they had to have had big breakthrough innovations, multiple ones in their lifetime. And that helps us separate person from context. Uh, if, you, if you look at, if you study a one hit wonder, you don't know how much of what happened was due to them 
and how much of what happened was due to the opportunity that was around them. Uh, they had to have multiple biographies written about them because you want to have lots of material and you don't want to be unduly influenced by any particular biographer. And they also had to have lots of first-person accounts, meaning you I wanted to have lots of first-person material from the innovator themselves, like letters they wrote and interviews and recorded videos, and also first-person accounts of their friends and family, because that helps you uh, basically draw your own conclusions about who the innovators were without the interpretation of someone who's written about them. So once I set up that criteria, that in essence screened off some people I could and could not use. So I couldn't use, for instance, Sergey Brin or Larry Page, Page or Jeff Bezos because not enough had been written about them yet. I couldn't use Leonardo da Vinci because there were no first-person accounts or very few first-person accounts. Uh, but the people who came up time and time again that were on the list, there was maybe about 20 to 30 people that I could have used. And I went through that set and I picked people that were from different time periods and from different technological areas. Now, my one sort of disappointment in this process is that I ended up with mostly uh, white men. There was only one woman who made that set. And there were literally no people of color. And I was really discouraged by that at first. I'm still discouraged by it. But um, now that I've done the study, I understand why it happened. And, and the main reason is that through the time period you end up sampling, which is the last 300 years, in that time period, there's only a very small number of years in which women were accepted into higher education and where people of, of color were accepted into higher education. So they really didn't have access to science. And all of my innovators are in science and technology. That was my focus. So it was really just a sampling problem. Um, but uh, we do learn a lot about the disadvantages they face from Marie Curie. Okay, so the people I studied were Elon Musk, Steve Jobs, Dean Kamen. Uh, he's the person who invented the world's first portable drug infusion pump and the world's first portable dialysis machine. He also invented the Segway, which is the thing people most know him for, but I think of him as more of a medical device inventor. Okay, so then there's, let's see if I said Dean Kamen, Elon Musk, Steve Jobs, Marie Curie, Thomas Edison, Nikola Tesla, Benjamin Franklin, and Albert Einstein. Wow. That, that list is really interesting. They and they're they're people who are are very different in my mind, but but so the, the the question the question I have is what characteristics do these creative geniuses in in the book what what did you find that they they share if you could just give us a couple of like these macro things that they all kind of share yeah uh, some of the big ones that they share everybody but Benjamin Franklin exhibits this really marked sense of separateness which was uh, unusual and surprised me because it certainly wasn't something I was looking for. But separateness is this social detachment or feeling disconnected from the social world around you or feeling like its rules don't apply to you. So here's an interesting thing. Uh, Albert Einstein, Elon Musk, and Nikola Tesla all had uh, quotes in their first-person accounts that were almost identical where they indicated, they said, I love humanity, but I don't really love humans that much. So that was really like interesting. Oh. <laughs> it was really interesting that they were so alike in that way. And then Marie Curie, Steve Jobs, obviously very much didn't feel the social rules applied to him around, uh, you know, things like he would stare intensely at people without blinking and he would go without showering 
and not wear deodorant, so he often had a bit of a smell. And he sometimes didn't wear shoes. He didn't put a license plate on his car. He just didn't feel like those rules applied to him. But this separateness, which at first I thought was just a, an unusual commonality, this separateness was a big part of why they were able to be independent thinkers and to reject the received wisdom that uh, other people adhered to. It, it enabled them to challenge assumptions in part because they decided those rules just didn't apply to them. They didn't buy into those rules. So that was one commonality, a sense of separateness. <laughs> Another commonality that they all had was really high self-efficacy. So self-efficacy is task-related confidence. Uh, it's a sort of a narrow type of confidence where you have uh, great faith in your ability to overcome obstacles to achieve your goals. And when someone has high self-efficacy, they will take on bigger projects and they'll stick with them longer because they believe they're going to overcome the hurdles that come their way. And all of these people had intense self-efficacy. But the one you probably see it the most in today is Elon Musk. This is a guy who heard that NASA wasn't going to get us to Mars and decided, well, all right, and rolls up his sleeves, I'll get us to Mars myself. I mean, that's a pretty enormous sense of self-efficacy. And when he said he was going to do this, people said it was impossible. And the whole space industry, in fact, said it was impossible. They said, we've spent 50 years trying to figure out how to make reusable rockets that will be affordable for space travel, and it can't be done. You're wasting your time. And he was actually uh, kind of hurt when even Neil Armstrong said it was a fool's errand. But he shrugged his shoulders and he said, I think I can do it. And he did it, right? Last year, he demonstrated the first reusable rocket in March of 2017. And you probably saw the Falcon Heavy launch the other day and saw that beautiful video footage of those two boosters coming down and landing precisely where they were supposed to land. He did what other people said was impossible. And that's self-efficacy, this, this faith that you can do what others think uh, is impossible, or just faith that you can overcome obstacles. The third trait that I saw the most in the innovators, actually, let me back up. One trait they all had was extreme intelligence. They were all extremely smart, and many of them were noted for having exceptional memories. Uh, so that was sort of a uniform thing across all the innovators. Uh, another trait that turned out to be really important, it was in seven out of the eight innovators, is idealism. So most of the innovators had this, in, this uh, keenly important idealistic goal that they were focused on that they considered intrinsically noble and important. And because it was intrinsically important, it helped organize their lives and keep them very motivated and focused. It gave them sort of a big picture, long horizon viewpoint. Uh, they, it also provided a form of ego defense, meaning that when people criticized them or they experienced failure, instead of quitting, they just suffered it as something to be endured, just, just a hurdle along the way. But because this goal was more important than themselves, they weren't gonna quit. And I think that that was really important. Great. Can, would you mind just giving us what would be one other one? We don't want to give away all all of the you know traits and everything, but could you just give us one more? Okay. Uh, another one they had. Well, there's. Do you want one that's really related to those, or do you want one that's um, kind of just unrelated to those? Well, I'll, I'll just pick one. You know, another thing I found is that I'm going to give you two actually, if you don't mind. Yeah. One go of the. For it. One of the things that's interesting about these innovators is most of them, a fair amount of them had far less formal education than you would expect. So Dean Kamen, who made huge contributions to medical and medical science, who invented all these medical devices that have changed the way uh, people's lives are lived, he didn't even technically graduate from high school. 
and he definitely didn't graduate from college. He paid tuition at college and then told his professors, look, I'm not going to go to class. I'm not going to take tests. I'm just here to have you as my consultant. Uh, Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Edison had almost no education at all. Even Elon Musk, who did have education, had an undergraduate degree, says that he didn't go to classes. He just showed up to take the exams. And some people hear this, and we all know Steve Jobs, of course, dropped out of college. Some people hear this and they think education isn't important, so I can ignore education and still be successful. But that's not actually what happened with these innovators. What happened was that they were intensely focused on self-education. They were autodidactic. They liked to read intensely, and they liked to teach themselves things. And they found the structure of school chafed them. It was like a shackle that constrained the paths they wanted to follow. But they were intensely in, invested in education, but they had to do it at their own rhythm and their own pace and their own direction. They wanted to go as far down a path as they wanted or as far broad across different paths as they wanted. So while all of them, in fact, resisted the structure of formal education, they were all very, very educated, but they were self-educated. And I think that that has a lot of interesting implications for how we think about education, because you know, the, the type of uh, curriculum that might be set up in a class or the pedagogical tools that are chosen, they might be great for some students and they might be terrible for some other students because people learn in different ways. Uh, I'm a professor and I, I experience this all the time. Some people are auditory learners and some people are visual learners. Some people like a lot of structure and lecture. Some people like a free freewheeling discussion that's more organic and, and unstructured. Some people need to be in a completely silent environment to really focus. Other people need ambient noise. So, um, you know, I came away from this project realizing that we probably need to find ways to enable people to customize their learning experience more if we really want them to fulfill their potential. Uh, just a quick question on that, because um, we, we did an interview that aired a while back um, with a guy talking about um, education and how actually it's 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 we actually shouldn't value higher education as much as we do, and we really should be tapping into uh, other types of things. So here's my question: Is you know, hearing these 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 people, and 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 Caleb and I have have both done reading in your book. It really sounds like they just figured out how they learned best and doubled down on it. So here's my question: Kind of with that is what is this something that that everybody should do and, and can do and if so like how can you can, how can you really begin to double down on figuring out how you you do that so that you can learn the way that these people do it just yeah. seems like they were super super self aware to be able to figure out exactly what they needed and then they just they just they just went hard at 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 um at doubling down on it yeah i mean i think that's actually um a question that's up for debate how self-aware they were, because I, it's not entirely clear to me that the, all of them figured out how they learned and then followed that. What's entirely clear to me is that they were uh, very curious and they had a problem they were trying to solve and they just naturally followed a course of action that fulfilled their need to learn about that problem. So, you know, it's, it's I don't know that... I don't know that Elon Musk ever sat down and assessed his own learning style and how he learned. Oh, maybe he has because he talks about it quite a bit now. But I don't know that all of them did that. Uh, what I do know is that they were the kind of people who said, you know, to heck with what you want. I'm going to do what I want. And and 
They chose to learn the ways they wanted to learn. Elon, not Elon Musk, Steve Jobs, uh, for instance, he dropped out of college because he felt guilty about how much money his parents were spending. And he felt like he wasn't getting that much out of college. So he officially dropped out of college. But then he started just dropping in on the classes that he wanted to take. And he said after the fact, he's like, that is the best thing that ever happened to me because I started really focusing on the things I wanted to focus on. And that was that ended up being a hugely transforming moment for him. But it's not clear to me that when he initially dropped out, he knew that he needed a different structure of learning that he was going to create for himself. He dropped out because he thought, I'm not getting what I want and I'm going to do what I want. Well, so follow up to that then. Are there rhythms and things that help these people that you can that you've found in terms of discovering that like well, like him kind of dropping out but not doing it for that reason, but just ultimately knowing I'm not fully getting what I need and then starting to just to drop in or you talked about how um uh, uh I think it was Elon Musk who now he kind of has figured out this stuff but but at the time it was it was more of I need to intensely pursue. Are there any rhythms or things that they, they, they did to kind of figure that out? Yeah. Well, so let me bring up a couple of examples that I, that might help us answer this question. At first I want to say like, you know, Elon Musk actually formed a little school for his own children and, and some other kids. I think there's about 20 kids in the school called Ad Astra. Have you heard of this? Uh-huh. No. Huh? So it's called Ad Astra, which is Latin for to the stars. And in the beginning, it was hosted in the SpaceX facility. I don't know where it is now, but it was because he thought, you know, standard education, standardized education doesn't work. And he he actually thought it was pretty ridiculous that we enter kids into a grade level based on their age as opposed to where they what they're ready for and that we give them tools instead of letting them focus on problems that they want to solve. So he created his own school where there's no grades in terms of grade level. There's also no grades given in terms of assessment. Uh, It's all totally customized learning, which is pretty interesting. Um, You know, I think that I think that rhythm is an important question, but I don't think that the rhythm is the same for everyone. Like Dean Kamen wrote quite a bit about his educational experience. And he said one of the things he struggled with is that he felt like when he was at school, He was getting all this different knowledge just sprayed at him from a fire hose, and he didn't get time to think and reflect and connect up things the way he wanted. Like, he needed to spend more time on individual subjects to integrate them. And he refers to himself as being a slow thinker. I'm not entirely convinced by that because, well, there's just a lot of reasons I'm not entirely convinced that he's a slow thinker. But he refers to himself as a slow thinker, and he said that the structure of school just didn't make any sense for him. It was hard for him to pay attention because it was just being hit with all this random stuff. So in his case, he needed to take one topic and really spend time to focus on it and to reflect and go deep on one topic at a time, Uh, which, you know, you can see the pattern in him. I'm not sure the pattern was the same for everybody. When you look at Marie Curie, uh, first of all, she had a very obsessive nature. So she's someone who would have liked to have gone long for big hours, big in-depth study of something, not broken up by lots of little chunks, uh, like the way we have classes right now. And I, uh, I think this is a really interesting point that some people like to have things broken up. It helps them pause and rest and incubate and integrate. Other people need longer chunks 
in a particular subject. But I think I think the real question is how we're going to find those what patterns work for different people. And I think right now we're not even asking the question, right? I have kids in school. I don't think anyone is even trying to figure out what form of learning feels right to them or what form of learning works best for them. I think right now they think it's just too hard, that it would be too hard to create a curricula that could meet different people's needs. But um, I think if you gave more people the option to do self-study, they would solve those problems for themselves. You know, Melissa, another question that, you know, as I was reading through the book, I was wondering is, you know, are these are these traits just something that they're born with or were they something that they had to learn? And like, does that apply to us? Are these traits that something that, you know, the average person can learn from? Or is it just like, oh, man, there's no hope for me? Because I want to learn this thing. <laughs> I want to I want to be like Steve Jobs and Elon Musk. I'm just saying. <laughs> OK, so um, I spent a lot of time thinking about nature or nurture. And you have to be careful there because in in academia, the whole nature versus nurture thing can be kind of a third rail. You have to be really careful about that one. Uh, what I would say, so there's some things about them that seem to be nature, right? Like being, Marie Curie was born really smart. I'm just, you know, she from four years old was out reading her old, much older siblings. They knew very early on that this was just a brilliant little girl, that she really stood out. And, and I think that she was born with that. Uh, so, you know, Elon Musk and Nikola Tesla both were born with photographic memory. And that's, that's definitely nature. That's not nurture. It's really the way their, their memories handle information. And they both have this interesting visual processing memory called eidetic memory, which enabled them to manipulate things in their mind visually, almost like a computer-aided design machine. That's nature. But the thing that my research uh, showed that was very exciting is that sometimes even if you don't possess a trait, you can tap into the same mechanism that leads to innovation. So I'm going to give you an example. A lot of these people have this, as I mentioned, this real sense of separateness. And for some of them, this might have come from a, a deep personality trait that has some component of nature in it. I don't think we know for sure how much a personality is nature. There's a lot of speculation and research on that, but I don't think there's a consensus. A lot of people think there are big parts of personality that you're born with. Uh, I'm not going to, I don't need to, I don't need to answer that question really for this study, but even if you aren't born with this tendency to be uh, sort of socially detached or very obsessive, you can still tap a lot of the same mechanisms to be more innovative. And I'll say one of the things that stands out right away is that people need to spend more time thinking and writing and reading alone. So, for instance, brainstorming groups don't work. We know they don't work, but for some reason we still use them. They, we've been using them since the 70s when Alex Osborne said that brainstorming groups were going to be more creative than individuals. Yet there's tons of research in psychology showing exactly why they don't work. So, for example, when I'm talking, it's hard for you to think, and it's certainly impossible for you to vocalize and refine your idea if I'm the person in the group who's talking at that moment. And there's also the problem that people are apprehensive about sharing their wildest ideas, right? They, they don't want you to think they're crazy. Sometimes they want to avoid conflict. So they tend to share ideas they think you're going to agree about. So as a result, brainstorming groups tend to bring everybody to mediocre compromises. Uh, if you want people to come up with really creative ideas, you have to let them spend some time alone. They need to think and reflect on what they really believe, and they need to form a self-concept that's not contaminated by group norms. And they need to decide how they think the world works, and they need to figure out what they're intrinsically interested in. 
And I think this is extremely important for kids. It's extremely important for adults. And frankly, it's changed the way I parent. So, for example, uh, you know, in this in this time, I guess I would say this era, maybe parents are under a lot of pressure to schedule their kids. Right. Lots of summer camp and after school activities and soccer team and glee club because everybody wants kids to maximize their learning and, and develop social skills and charisma and the ability to negotiate with others. But I've come to believe that kids need a lot of downtime, right? They need time to think and reflect. And that downtime needs to be without a screen because if you're playing a video game or watching a YouTube video, you're reacting, you're not creating. So you're, you're experiencing the same production blocking effects that would be in a brainstorming team, for instance. You're not getting a chance to really think about how you think the world works. So I try to make my kids sit down and write and ask them big questions about how the world works and what they think is important. Not because I expect them to deliver an essay that is going to help them achieve some uh, educational goal, but because I want them to develop those paths of association in their head that are individual to them. Love that, I really do. So speaking of speaking of kids, um, next question that I would have is where and and from whom do you expect to see this next big breakthrough and in innovation come from? Yeah, gosh, there's so much exciting stuff going on right now. I know that the the sexy topic right now is artificial intelligence and robots. That's what people are talking about. But I really, the thing that I think is really going to affect, I mean, I do think automation is going to affect our lives. Automation has been affecting our lives, right? If you think about how much the dishwasher and the washing machine transformed our lives, those were pretty huge, right, in the grand scheme of things. And now then computers and information technology and communication technology, obviously all those things changed our lives. So the march of automation changing our lives will continue to go on. But the one that's really... Um, disruptive, in my opinion, or and I, I, I don't actually even like the word disruptive here because I don't see it as displacing as many other solutions as it is creating a solution to problems we never had a solution for. Uh, I'd say genetic editing. So gene editing is actually going to take a whole bunch of diseases off the map, I believe, in the next 20 years that have previously never been able to be addressed. And that's going to make such a big difference for so many people. So I'm pretty excited about that. So I, for example, um, they're developing gene editing cures for things like Huntington's and ataxia and uh, hemophilia. And these are cures for diseases that never even, you know, Huntington's never even had a treatment before. There was never even any way to slow it down. When you got that diagnosis, that was it. You just faced, you just faced a difficult decline, right? Uh, with nothing you could do about it. But, but with genetic editing, you can actually just remove it from the species. And I think that that's pretty amazing. What are you seeing in the world of like virtual reality and that kind of thing? Because I think right now, um, it's it's kind of like a novelty, but oftentimes novelties can become um, reality. What do you, do you are you hearing anything about virtual reality and the, this kind of VR movement? Yeah, yeah. I've actually heard a lot of people shift now to augmented reality because okay. uh, virtual reality. You know, let's say you put on a headset and you imagine you're somewhere else. That's really cool. But augmented reality, where you can integrate that somewhere else with your current environment and your friends and your work, that's way more powerful. Uh, so I mean, there's some fun stuff coming out in that, right? I, I 
even some sort of basic recreational stuff, like you can go to a concert with your friends, even if your friends are around the world and even if you can't make it to the concert. You could all feel like you're at the concert, interact at the concert, talk about it afterwards, feel like you're actually at the event when in fact none of you really came together. It's it's pretty cool. And the, the extension possibilities of that are just uh, pretty amazing. Well, I guess another question that I have is, you know, is there something that, you know, the average person can do today to become more like these innovators? Yeah, absolutely. I'd say one of the things we can and should absolutely all do right away is to cultivate some ambitious goals that we see as intrinsically important. So we can we can get that same idealistic focus as the innovators. And one of the things that's going to help you do is think a lot bigger. I'll give you an example. The other day, I don't remember how it came about, but somebody asked me the question, or maybe I read it online, like, is there a single thing you could do that would most transform New York for the better? And I spent the day thinking about it, and I ended up deciding the thing that I would pick would be to make the subway free. Because even though we think of the subway as being inexpensive, it's it's not inexpensive if you're underemployed or unemployed. And one of the key barriers to becoming employed is transportation, right? Being able to get to places where you can work. Think about it big and ask yourself, okay, what are the biggest obstacles? All right, so let, let me define what the big buckets of obstacles are in terms of solving that problem. And then make up your mind, I can overcome them. I can overcome any obstacle if I really set my mind to it and really work hard at it. That's something that Elon Musk and Marie Curie and Steve Jobs all taught us. So if you start with that mindset, that can be really powerful. The second thing I would do that's uh, it's a, it's an interesting habit to get into is to challenge everything around you, challenge every assumption around you and assume that it's not given. For instance, you know, I look out the window and I see cars rolling down the street and a lot of people assume that, yeah, cars rolling down the street, that's the way cars work. Well, what if that's not how they worked? What if they didn't roll? What if they were suspended on rails? What if they were blown through a tube? What if there was no car at all? What if there were treadmills, not treadmills, uh, conveyor belts that we all got on? Once you start challenging every assumption around you, you're thinking like Steve Jobs. He was really good at this. Great. And just as, you know, as we move towards uh, concluding, we just have a few questions that we always love to ask all of our guests. And so just kind of the first one is, what's one thing that you've started doing recently that has helped you either professionally or personally? You know, um, for years, I had kind of written off books. I was a research professor. I thought all the good stuff was in research articles. And I thought books were sort of uh, just fluffier versions of research articles. And I didn't want to spend time on them. And I think I made a mistake with that. And so I have recently started going back to books. When I was a kid, I loved to read books, but it was mostly fiction. Now I'm reading a lot of nonfiction. I do a lot of it via uh, audio. Uh, I actually really love to put on an audio cast of a book and then put it at 1.25 times the speed. And, and it, it takes about 15 seconds for your brain to adjust to the speed. But once your brain adjusts, like that just I love that flow of information coming out me. And uh, I'll go about my day just listening to different books. And I think that um, that's probably the, the single thing lately that I've really changed. What's something what's something in, in the last six months that you've read or listened to that that you really were into? Okay, so like one of the books I read most recently was Abundance. That's a pretty optimistic book. Have, have you guys seen that one? Uh, no. 
So Abundance is a book that uh, I, I had it right here. I can't remember the author offhand. It's a book that basically takes a lot of trends and extrapolates them and shows that we're actually living in a time of abundance. We tend to focus on scarcity and, you know, the, the, the sky is falling. We're going to run out of energy. We're going to run out of food. But this book really makes the case for the fact that things are getting better and we should be hopeful and optimistic because we're actually getting better. Um, a lot of things in greater abundance than in the past. So I really loved that book. I have to say, I also really loved the Ashley Vance biography of Elon Musk. I, God, I, I could read that three times. There's so much great stuff in there, especially as a strategy professor. I uh, loved that book and found Elon Musk's story incredibly inspiring. How do you learn best? Like when you're learning, when you're trying to learn new information, how do you learn best? Yeah, I've always said that I'm a, a visual learner. I like to see things graphically. I, I like to see things drawn out in pictures. Uh, the hardest way for me to learn is probably to listen to a lecture just via an, an auditory way. But I do like to read. And some people would say that reading is closer to auditory learning than visual learning. So, uh, you know, I'm not entirely sure about that. But um, if somebody can draw a picture of something to me and diagram how something works, it'll stay with me forever. Are there any ways that you've kind of hacked that and, and really been able to, to incorporate that into, into all sorts of different ways for you? Yeah, I draw pictures of everything. I, I really have to sit down and draw pictures of stuff. And when I teach, I really, I, I really try to make an effort that I teach everything in both ways. Like I have the words, I draw the pictures, I assign them a book, although they don't always read it, much to my frustration. Um, <laughs> But I really think uh, the more I, the more you can try to give people information in multiple ways so that they can themselves can self-customize how they're consuming information, it's better. But yeah, I like to draw pictures of things. And one of the things I've discovered just recently that I love is that there are lots of really complicated concepts that now people have made animated videos about online. That is awesome. The yeah. only thing I would change about that is I wish you could adjust the speed because I, I need a higher level of speed than most of these videos are done in. And I can get really fidgety and agitated if I have to watch a video that's going too slowly. Hopefully the people at Google who own YouTube will, will listen. Yeah. <laughs> so. And then just one final question is, what are you learning right now? What am I learning right now? Um... I'm learning several things. You know, I'm, I'm actually have an obsession on amyotrophic lateral sclerosis right now, so I'm studying that on the side. I've been trying to learn about artificial intelligence and the algorithms people are using to do the learning, uh, in part because I've studied learning. You know, I do some simulation of learning in some of my work, and one of the things I've noticed is that the basic rules you set in about the payoff structure in a simulation radically influence the outcomes you get. And we need to really think very carefully about that in artificial intelligence because the objectives that we build into an artificial intelligence uh, system are going to shape whether that artificial intelligence system wants to help humanity or replace humanity or have a competitive orientation or a cooperative orientation. So I've been learning about artificial intelligence a lot lately. Um, I'm also learning a lot about the book promotion business lately. <laughs> If we get that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Melissa, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. If people want to continue to learn from you or get the book, where can they do that? Oh, you can get it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or, or any of the independent booksellers that are online. 
And that's available in audio, paperback, hard, uh, no, not paperback yet, just audio and Kindle and hardcover. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. So, Todd, what did you learn from our conversation with Melissa? I think one of the things that I learned uh, just in talking to her is that these people who, who she researched, they had quirks. They had things that, that made them different. But a lot of it is are, a lot of it are actually things that that we can learn. They're learned habits. I mean, of course, you're never going to be able to, you know, get the, the memory right that that uh, Elon Musk or some of these other guys um, or girls had. But there are a lot of things that we can train ourselves to do. There are a lot of things we can learn to be able to um, to be able to think more like an innovator. Second thing I learned is that parakeets are freaking awesome. And I'm going to ask my mom. You mean parrots? Parrots. What did I say? <laughs> parakeets. Did, did I say parakeets? Yes, you did. Well, I mean, it's the same thing. No, it's not. Well, Google it. Yeah, I think one of the things that I learned from that is that I think I display some innovation qualities you and some quirks. You definitely do, guys. Caleb is an innovator, and we know that because he socially isolates himself because... He's an innovator. It's not because he's weird. He's an innovator. LOL. That's it. I'm socially isolating myself for the rest of the podcast. He's socially isolating himself. (laughs) He set the microphone down. (laughs) Well, anyways, if you guys enjoyed this episode, if you um, would like to hear more, if you'd like to follow us and continue to learn, you can go and subscribe to the podcast. He's really socially isolating himself. He is no longer participating right now. You can do that by subscribing um, on your podcast player. Um, and if you like this episode, if you learned something from it, give us some feedback. The best way to do that is to leave us a rating and write a review of the podcast. You can do that on iTunes, Google Play. You can do that there. Um, and share it. If you guys like this episode, share it on social media. Give us some love there. We really, really do appreciate it. And guys, until next time, keep learning and keep growing. Deuces, y'all.